pertussis, otherwise known as whooping cough, is on the rise again in adults. Are your patients' immunizations for pertussis and other preventable illnesses up to date? You are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. William Schaffner, professor and chairman of the Department of Preventive Medicine and professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. In addition, Dr. Schaffner serves as vice president of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. Dr. Schaffner, welcome to the show. Larry, good to be with you. I just want to know, how often do you get teased because of your name? (laughs) I used to get that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening with pertussis? Is it really on the rise, or are we just getting better documentation? The internists are a little bit out of it. The pediatricians and the family doctors know that it's on the rise, and so do public health folks, because they've seen outbreaks of pertussis in middle schoolers, high schoolers, college kids, young adults, and that's because... We all get vaccinated against pertussis when we were little, but immunity wanes, and this prolonged cough illness with a lot of exhaustion and even cough fractures and syncopal episodes is is back, I'm afraid. Should we be thinking about different kind of ways that it presents itself in adults rather than in children? Is it not as severe in, in adults, so we may not think of it? Yeah, that's exactly the correct. And... Uh, Part of the difficulty is most of us don't have ready access to a neat diagnostic test. And so you have to think about it in its clinical presentation. We all have read about pertussis, classical whooping cough in young children, which is an exhausting illness, even life-threatening among the very, very young. But we get modified disease in middle schoolers and high schoolers and such, and it tends to be a vexing, prolonged cough illness. Cough can come in spasms, uh, can be associated with vomiting, even occasional syncopal episodes. It can interrupt sleep, results in anorexia and even weight loss and interference with activities. It doesn't have to be febrile. So it's a different kind of illness, but it can last for weeks. What should I, as an internist, be treating it with? Does it matter? Erythro? Can I throw biaxin? Can I throw any of those at it? And will it make a difference in the clinical outcome? By the time the patients see us four, five, six, eight days into their illness, treatment makes virtually no difference to the individual patient. What it will do is prevent transmission to others. And so we give treatment, either erythromycin, but actually now azithromycin, Zithromax, is the preferred because there's much less gastrointestinal upset. What about treating the the symptoms of it? That probably is more important. Are you using bronchodilators? Are you using steroids? Are you, you know, throwing anything at the patient that works? You can try different things, but there isn't an easy recipe for something that works. And that'll bring me back to prevention which is why it's important to note that there's now a new, newly licensed, I should say, acellular vaccine against pertussis mixed with tetanus and diphtheria, Tdap, T-D-A-P, tetanus, diphtheria, acellular pertussis. And it's now been licensed as a one-time booster dose, and so you can substitute it for the every 10-year booster. You know, I forget when kids get their last pertussis shot. I mean, how old are they? So, I mean, I don't think you're getting it with your tetanus when you're 18. No, it's it's 
kind of in your mid-teens, often before kids go to uh, college. Their docs will grab them one more time and give them a booster. And so calculating from that, that gets you into the late 20s or early 30s. If there's pertussis in the community, however, you can give a dose of Tdap as soon as two years since your last TD. And there's controversy, so we're conservative about giving it during pregnancy. Prefer not to do that. Okay. And if you have to, late in pregnancy. That's correct. Not early. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Today I'm talking with Dr. William Schaffner, professor and chairman of the Department of Preventive Medicine and professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. In addition, Dr. Schaffner serves as vice president of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. We're talking about the resurgence of pertussis. What else are we seeing out there that's kind of coming back that we may have thought was totally gone? Just along those lines, hepatitis B has been a great success story because we're vaccinating all children through adolescence. And rates of hepatitis B in that population have absolutely plummeted. However, once you cross the threshold of the 19th birthday, the national recommendations are not universal. They're risk-based. In other words, in the past, patients have had to either be healthcare workers or acknowledge some sort of either sexual or lifestyle risk factor to be, quote, eligible for hepatitis B. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has loosened up that recommendation recently so that a patient doesn't have to be explicit about why they want the vaccine, and the doctor doesn't have to pursue that with precision before they give the vaccine. So insurance will cover it. Well, we hope so, because that's what's in the recommendations. And indeed, the CDC's advisory committee now says, get this, any person who is not in a long-term, mutually monogamous sexual relationship is is eligible for hep B vaccine. That's an awful lot of young adults. As I like to quip, Monogamous is a word that doesn't take a modifier. Now, I know that A and B now are in the same vaccine, which makes it kind of nice. But A is usually two doses, B is three. So now with the, with the combo, are they, uh, how are they doing that? They're doing it in a three-dose series. So that's driven by uh, hepatitis B. That may be a little bit extra for the A component. That vaccine is very effective for travelers who you know, are going abroad to the developing world because you can give both immunizations very, very efficiently. The one we're usually most worried about is A, and it's now clear that hepatitis A vaccine, even one dose within two weeks, provides protection. They always come in right before they leave, and you know, I feel like, am I doing enough by giving them one shot? And you just answered that. Most people in travel medicine now are happy to do that. Tell me a little bit about the new shingles vaccine. Are you bullish or bearish on it? In fact, I have to tell you truth in advertising. The vaccine was studied in about 30 sites across the country. One of them was here at Vanderbilt, and both my wife and I were volunteers for the vaccine trial. We didn't know whether we were going to get placebo or the vaccine, and when we opened up our envelopes, we were both delighted we had received the vaccine. So yes, I'm bullish on the vaccine. How young are you, Dr. Schaffner? I've just turned 70. This was about eight years ago when the vaccine trial was underway. You know, I had a patient last week, a 60-year-old guy who just got over shingles, and he was asking me if he should get the vaccine. I didn't know what to tell him. That's a tough question. 
the advisory group debated that a great deal. And what they said was, yes, you're eligible for the vaccine. It won't hurt. It probably will help. And then the next question you're going to ask me is, how long shall I wait since the episode of shingles? Now, if we go out on a limb, that's really getting out to the twig level on evidence. And the general sense is, about a year, for not very good reasons, but it just seems prudent. What kind of numbers are we seeing with the shingles vaccine? Compared to placebo, how much more beneficial has it been? You reduce by about 70% your chance of shingles and post-shingles pain. And the closer you do it to age 60, rather than doing it at age 85, the more likely you are to see that benefit. It turns out that if you survive to age 85, and all of us have that intention at least, you have about a 50 to 60% chance of actually experiencing shingles. So as our population ages, we're going to be seeing more and more of that. And of course, in addition to shingles itself, which if it involves the face can threaten vision and be very, very uncomfortable, it's post-shingles, post-herpetic neuralgia That's the real problem, which can really be vexing, can be severe. And I've seen it change people's lives who become virtually a hermit at home because of post-shingles pain. So this is not an acute communicable disease. This is a different use of a vaccine, but very, very beneficial. Bill, 20 years ago, when I was in med school, I learned that anytime I see shingles in a young person, I should be worried about HIV or some underlying occult malignancy. Does that still hold water? True fact. Absolutely. Have that on your mind and uh, investigate further. It's just, you know, I I see a lot of shingles in primary care, and I I don't want to be putting everyone through the ringer for for looking for a malignancy. To this point, I've been lucky. I have not, you know, haven't missed any. But it seems seems a little excessive because it is so common a disease. Well, you made a very good point, Larry, which is it's when shingles occurs in the young, it's worth looking into that. As patients get older, I think you don't have to dig as hard for underlying causes because our slowly waning immune system is sufficient for the varicella virus to come out of hiding and give us shingles. I think on that note, I'm going to bring this to a close. I'd like to thank Dr. William Schaffner very much for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Larry. I'm Dr. Larry Casco, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.